My name is Mary, and this is my resurrection story. I was a quiet, shy girl from Western Kansas. I grew up attending church every Sunday, and I obediently followed the rules. I thought that I would go to heaven because I was good. My mother wanted me to be a nun, but I wanted to get married and have children. I received Christ as my Savior at age 18. I was a freshman at college. I lived in a dorm. It was Sunday evening. I was sitting in the vending machine area eating a sandwich, and this guy sits down beside me with his Bible, and he said, Hi, I'm Mike. Can I tell you something? He opened his Bible and he read John 3:16. For God so loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not die but have eternal life. I knew that Christ died for my sins, but Christ was not a part of my life. And then I said, yes, I, I want him to be a part of my life. So Mike asked me to repeat this prayer. Lord, I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to die for me. And I ask your forgiveness for not following you. And I want you to be part of my life. First, I bought a Bible and I started going to Bible studies. And I loved the enthusiasm that the others, ladies and girls who studied God's Word had. I learned that the most important thing was to tell others how much I loved Jesus and show them passion in my heart and that I'm not afraid to stand up for Jesus. His love, I experience it through other people, through Christians. Um, when my husband died, I needed people to be with me. And, and uh, I experienced this love through reading the Bible, the, the different stories in the Bible. I love the story of Esther, uh, how she was courageous and she did what, what she thought she had to do to save her people. I have periods where I forget to read the Bible and I forget to pray, but those times are fewer. And now I desire to lead others to Christ. And I know that I don't have to be a scholar. Just tell them how much God loves them and He has a plan for them, just like Mike told me. Good morning again. It's good to see you all. I'm so grateful uh, to be gathered here with you all this morning. Grateful to, to Mary for sharing uh, her story. And it'll be a, really a perfect kind of segue into our text that we'll get into in, in just a minute. This reminder of the simple sharing, the simple proclamation of God's word and how it brings transformation. And so uh, again, just thank you so much for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into this sanctuary. For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at Home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or 
or dining room or wherever you happen to, to be. If you're somebody that's newer to Crosspoint, if we've never been introduced, my name is Jamie, and it is my, my joy to open up God's word with you all this morning. It's my joy to be one of the pastors here uh, at Crosspoint. And we are in this series that, that we began on Easter called Rise, and it's this invitation to know and experience not just that the resurrection happened, though it did historically happen, but also that the resurrection continues to happen. Like God continues to bring about resurrection stories. And so if you're here this morning and you're in Christ, right, you have a resurrection story. Friends, this is an exciting day, all right? We are gonna celebrate baptisms after the service and we will be reminded of the fact that the power of God still is at work raising people from death to life, right? We get to celebrate that. I've also heard there are bounce houses that are gonna be happening afterwards, so that is uh, not quite as exciting as baptisms, but it is pretty next level, all right? So those will be there. And elementary kids, you guys are in the service uh, because we're using the social hall for the potluck to get ready for that after the service, but if you're elementary, kid here. Let's welcome the elementary students. All right. So glad to have you guys. So I want to spend just a, a few minutes, and I just love, I've been looking forward to this Sunday that we get to celebrate baptisms, be together as, as a church family. If you're here today and you're like, I didn't know that any of that stuff was happening, like hang out afterwards. We'll have plenty of, plenty of food. It's going to be, going to be great. All right. Um, we're going to be in First Thessalonians. Really, this series called Rise is a journey through this letter called First Thessalonians. And so I want to invite you to turn to chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 13 to 16. There are Bibles in the pews this morning. You can get one of those. I want you to have God's Word in front of you. You can also you can scan the QR code that's in the pew, and it'll bring up a menu where uh, it says sermon notes. The text is there. There's space to take notes. If there's things up on the screen that you're like, I want to remember that, it's there in uh, the notes, all right? And you can find that again at this is cp.church. But if you would, would you stand with me as I read God's word for us this morning? This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16. Paul writes this under the inspiration of God's spirit. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind." by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. This is God's word for us. You may have a seat. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, even if you haven't, just by way of recap, there is this, this account here. There's this letter that Paul's writing because he has helped start a church in this booming metropolis that's Thessalonica. It's in Macedonia. It's a city of over 100,000 people. And this church gets started there. And Paul and some of his other fellow ministers are there. They're helping to start it. They're sharing the word of God. And what we're going to see this morning is the power of the word. Like it brings people from death to life. It births new churches, all of these things. But Paul is run out of town. There's a riot that takes place. And now he's writing a letter. He cares deeply for these folks. And he's reminding them of the power of God's word and how it brought transformation. And even in the things that they're facing in their own trials and difficulties, he wants to remind them as a good pastor, as this under shepherd ministering under the, the great, the good shepherd that is Jesus, 
He's like, I need you to know. I need you to pay attention. Be reminded of how the word of God came to you and the transformation that it brought. So really what we have here, maybe one way to think about this this morning, is it's Paul's few verses here that he's taking to talk to them about what takes place when the word is proclaimed. Or maybe another way to think about it is this, like how do we actually think about sermons? Right? So I posed that question to you uh, this morning. How do you think about sermons? How do you think about preaching the word? And maybe you're like, I don't think about it. That's for you to think about. Maybe it might be a fair answer, right? Or you're like, I endure it, right? Um, all right, just to get to the bounce houses. I don't know what you are thinking this morning. How do you think about the proclamation of God's word? Maybe you fully align with the comedian George Burns who once said this, the secret of a good sermon is to have a good beginning and a good ending and then having the two as close together as possible. Words I have never heeded in my life. Somebody said an amen. Like, all right, there we go. Um, How should we think about the proclamation of God's word? What is to be our response to that? And so this morning, I wanna look at these verses to help us see the power of God, the power of God's word, right? The power of the word, and then look at, there's a pattern of the word. There are certain things that, though each of us are gonna be unique in our circumstances, there are things that we should expect, particular patterns as the word of God takes root in our lives. And then ask, what does it look like for us to participate in this word? But the power of the word, look with me at verse 13. This is what Paul does as he begins this. He's reminding them. He says these words. It starts with gratitude. Paul's not even through the opening couple of chapters here, right? And numerous times he has already spoken of the gratefulness, the gratitude he has for this group of people, this love, this affection. And ultimately it's gratitude that's directed towards God. He says, we also thank God. And he's like, constantly. He's like, I can't get over this. Like, I'm so enamored with what God has done. Like, praise God for the work of the gospel. He says, I thank God constantly that when you receive the word of God, so there was this proclamation, there was a preaching of God's word that took place. I don't know exactly what it looked like. They probably didn't have pews and what, but there was a gathering, there was a proclamation. And they said, and Paul says this, remember friends, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, And you accepted it, not as the word of men. It wasn't somebody's opinion, their hot take for that that moment on something, all right? He says, no, you received it, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. That there's this power that's there. And the way Paul speaks of this, when he says that word there, work, all right, the, the Greek word, you see it up here on the screen, you can see the root of it, like it's where we get our word, like for energy, right? This energeo, right? Like there's this, this, this force, there's this vitality, there's this energy, like there's this work that is happening. And it's not through human effort, it's not through human opinions, it's not through lists of things, checklists of things that you need to do. Paul simply says, friends, it's at work in you, that the power of God's word, it shows up and it beautifully disrupts everything. Think of the video you just watched. Mary, who's just minding her own business, right? Just going to the vending machine, right? I'm gonna, I'm gonna get something to, to eat. And then somebody walks up and says, can I share something with you? And goes to John three sixteen. I mean, just think about that. I don't think there was anything overly dramatic about that presentation. I don't think, it doesn't sound like the guy stood up and preached this like 45 minute sermon to her. It was just like, hey, can I show you this verse? 
Do you know this Jesus? There's this explosive power that's in the word of God. And what I love here is what Paul says, it's at work in you believers. Sometimes things get framed as kind of this, it's really a false dichotomy. People might ask, hey, are you into evangelism or are you into discipleship? And the answer is yes, right? Like it's not an either or, and it's not even, an, it's not even different approaches because here's the truth. He says it's at work in believers. And so the reminder here is, hey, when the Thessalonians didn't know Jesus, what did they need? They needed the gospel. They needed to hear about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. They need to know that Jesus died in their place, that he was the substitute, that he was the sacrificial lamb who takes away the sins of the world, their sins. They needed to know that and to receive that as not an opinion of a guy named Paul, but as the word of God calling them into this life of truth and of grace. And so they needed the gospel. They needed the word of God. And yet Paul also says, hey, friends, as you're dealing with the trials and difficulties, which we'll look at more here in a moment, he's like, guess what you need? It's the same gospel that's at work. So if you've been a Christian for five minutes or five decades or anywhere in between or beyond five decades, like whatever it is, you and I need the gospel. And so... It frees us up, doesn't it? If you're like, oh, what does this person need? They need Jesus. They need the gospel. Point people to Jesus. The power's in the word. It's not in your persuasive abilities, right? No, the power is in the word. There's this energy that the word of God brings. And friends, I want you to know this. There's a book I read years ago uh, by the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, this pastor and theologian. Um, it's called Preaching and Preachers. You may not find it interesting, I found it fascinating, all right? Um, and he's talking about, he's exhorting preachers. But in this particular section, there's one section that I remember, and he talks about, yes, how we prepare preachers and how they get ready to proclaim the word. But he's like, but it's not just the preacher. It is a monologue. I recognize that that's happening right now. But right now, like, let's talk in real time. You are helping to preach the message, all right? So from the elementary age kids, the oldest person here and everywhere in between, you're helping to preach. He talks about there's something that God does in and through a community. Hear these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, the very presence of a body of people in itself is a part of the preaching. And these influences begin to act immediately upon anyone who comes into a service. These influences, I suggest, are very often more potent in a spiritual sense, than pure intellectual argumentation. There's something that's happening as the people of God gather. It is not a mere gathering of people. Christ is present. This is the great mystery of the church. There is something in the very atmosphere of Christian people meeting together to worship God and to listen to the preaching of the gospel. Now, we will talk toward the end of this about like, how we carry this word forth as we leave the gathering. But know this, this is not the time to just come in and like download a bunch of information and say, okay, how can I apply that later? The reality is the spirit is present among us. And this is what Paul is saying to this group of people, like, hey, the spirit of God showed up. And yes, I preached a particular word, but we were all preaching this together. Like we know that, right? Like there's these moments where you sense like God is doing something. There is this energy, there is this movement of God that's taking place. It's not just that he's going to transform you in the days ahead, though that very likely could be the case. 
But also, are you opening yourself up to the fact that he might be changing you right here, right now, like on the spot in ways that you're like, I did not see this coming. And yet, how am I hearing this? It feels as if God is talking directly to me. Like, have you had those moments before? This is what Jones is getting at. Because here's the reality. Anytime the word is proclaimed, there's a power about it. This is why the prophet Isaiah would write these words. God inspired him to write these words in Isaiah 55, likening the word of God going forth like rain watering the earth and what it brings forth. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and they do not return there, but they water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Like, look what the rains and the snow do. So, he says, shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that, that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Paul's reminding a group of people, hey, this is played out. The word has been claimed. You have received it. You've accepted it. It's not the opinions of a man. It wasn't said in the most eloquent of way, but there was this proclamation that happens. There's power in the word. This is why the psalmist would write, perhaps you're familiar with Psalm 19, verses 7 to 9. Look at the language as it speaks, using different terms, certainly, but it's speaking about the scriptures. Like, there is a story that God has been writing. It's a story about his word from the very beginning, that the Bible speaks like, in the beginning, right? God said, let there be light. God creates by the power of his word. That word is Jesus. And by the power of the word, he is sustaining. Jesus is literally sustaining everything right now. The breath you just took has been part of the breathing in, the exhaling. Like That's all part of the sustaining power of Jesus by the word of his power. And that's been playing out. And there's a word that's being spoken so that you might know that God loves you, that he is for you, that he's moving toward you, regardless of the things that you've done, regardless of the ways that you've been sinned against, the shame that you carry, the brokenness, the hurt, the pain. Like, he is for you. This is God's, like, love letter to you. He is communicating. He wants you to know. He is speaking a word. And so as we hear these things, just be mindful of the fact that God is communicating to you that he loves you. He's trying to get this point across. So Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And look what it does. It's reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is pure. What does it do? Making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. They cause the heart to rejoice. Nothing can do that but the word of God. There are all kinds of competing messages. Friends, every single one of us, every single person in the world, is being discipled. There is a word that it's being spoken. Are we listening to the narratives that are out there about what you have to do, what you have to achieve, or are we listening to and resting in and surrendering to the good word, the good news that says Jesus has accomplished, Jesus has done it all. That's what causes the heart to rejoice. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Oh, I'm seeing clearly. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Do you know the scriptures to be these things? Do you know the word of God? Like this is, this is what is so powerful. There is no other message that declares this. Every message out there, every worldview, every competing religion, at the end of the day is about what you do in Christianity. No, no, no. It's not about what you do. It's about what God has done. 
And how do we respond to that? It's why the, the psalmist then in verse 10 says it this way. He says, more to be desired. Talking about just this good news, this proclamation. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. So according to the psalmist, if it's like, hey, not just regular gold. Apparently there's a fine gold. If I had that or I had God's word, I'm going with God's word every day. Right? I will forsake that because this is so much better. It's so much more precious. It's so much more valuable. And then he says, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Friends, do you know the sweetness of God's word? Are you celebrating that? Are you allowing it? Are you, are, are you like surrendering to it and say, Lord, speak to me. Remind me of what is true. There's a power in the word of God. Now, as we get into verse 14, there's this pattern of the word that we see in verses 14 to, to 16, all right? So start here at verse 14 and just look what Paul speaks of. He speaks of when there's a proclamation. If it is not rejected but is embraced, it leads to this imitation. It leads to this transformation. It leads to a whole new way to view the world, see the world, act in the world. Not because there's anything to earn. It's all been earned by Jesus but we're invited to participate. And so verse 14 says this. It says, for you, and the language here, again, is my brothers and sisters. For you, brothers and sisters, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. He's saying, there's this community, and it's bigger than what is just happening here in Thessalonica. He's like, there are churches that you're becoming imitators of, that you're in this together, this solidarity that are many, many miles away. They're in Judea. And friends, that same thing is true. Like, I'm so thankful for this church, but I'm also so thankful for the other churches that are just, churches that are just down the street. If they love Jesus and his word and proclaiming the gospel, thankful for the churches that are across town, across state lines, in other countries, other time zones, literally all around the world. There's this solidarity of what we have in common. And we become, it says, you became imitators of these, these churches in this other area. How so? For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And so he's like, hey, there's riots. There's been hardships, Paul is saying, since I left. And I want you to know, like, not because we wish this upon anybody. We're not like, ha, ah, bring on the pain. But he's saying, there are churches in Judea. They're dealing with their trials, their suffering, their persecution from some of their countrymen. You're dealing with it where you are. And in that, he's meant to encourage them, even a way to pay attention. Do you know if the word of God, like, are you experiencing the power of it? Part of it is God in his kindness says, there will be trials. There will be difficulties. It's not a matter of like, if that will happen, it's a matter of when that will happen. And if you've been sold some version of Christianity that is like, you accept Jesus and then everything in your life is just gonna go amazingly well. All right, you're gonna be super rich. You're gonna have all the relational health that, that you want. You're gonna get to experience everything. Like you will be the one that everybody's like, man, I wish I had their life. You were sold a lie. This prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. Paul, that's not what he's speaking of. He's actually saying, yes, there is joy to be found. Jesus comes and says, like, in me is life and life abundant. And yet Jesus also says, you'll take up your cross and you'll follow after me. And if we're to be imitators, not just of the other churches, but ultimately imitators of Jesus, 
If they crucified him, there is going to be part of our story. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be, be trials. And so Paul continues, and these are some hard words that probably could raise some questions in verse 15 to 16. He says, he's talking about his fellow, you know, the countrymen in Judea, persecution they're dealing with. He says, who killed both the Lord Jesus, killed Jesus and the prophets. And he says, and they drove us out. So it's stuff in the past. Now it's more present day. They displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Friends, what he's communicating when he says, like they oppose, they displease God, oppose all mankind, is anytime somebody seeks to thwart the forward movement of the gospel, when they stand in opposition to that, you're functionally standing in the way. Now, the word of God can't be stopped. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And it's not an image that the gates of hell are advancing against the church. No, it's the church advancing against the gates, like blowing those things open, rescuing people from condemnation and death and shame, all, all of that. And so it's not a fair fight. Like we're, we're with Jesus, and yet there is going to be this opposition. As we've seen in this book, like we are already, right, new people, new creations, and yet there's this not yet aspect to things. And so what Paul is saying is like there will be people that stand in opposition and they oppose all mankind. Why? Because all of mankind needs to know Jesus, needs to be brought into his grace and his truth and have their life transformed. And so if you stand in opposition of that, you're actually standing in opposition to like this blessing going forth. And so we don't want anything to do with that. And he speaks of, he says, always to fill up the measure of their sins, wrath has come upon them. At the end of the day, there's no middle ground. It's either those who know and trust that Jesus has taken the wrath of God that should have been poured out on them, should have been poured out on you, should have been poured out on me, but instead was poured out on Jesus, and then we've trusted in him. It's the power of the word. We experience new life. Or the other side, the other camp, would be those that will experience the wrath of God because they've rejected his grace. And so Paul is laying this out very clearly. Unfortunately, sadly, and just the brokenness of the human condition, it could almost sound like he's particularly going after the Jews. Paul is not. Paul is saying, hey, there's countrymen in Thessalonica, so fellow Gentiles, there's Jews. There's a brokenness about humanity that will stand in opposition to the gospel. There will be trials, there'll be difficulties. And Paul is not saying anything specific. Some sadly have taken this and been like, thinking Paul is anti-Jew, that he's anti-Semitic. They've used it to fuel that sort of like hate and nonsense and things that do not honor God. Like you only have to read Romans 9, 3 to realize, oh, Paul has a love for his fellow Jews. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's how badly he wants people of his background to understand Jesus, to embrace the word, to embrace the gospel. So friends, in this though, there's the power of the word. It brings, there's a pattern of the word. And the pattern is that there will be trials and there will be suffering. And so I just want us to consider this for a moment. Do you believe that God is redemptively at work in the trials that you face, in your suffering, in perhaps the times of mockery, whatever persecution looks like in this context, right? I mean, the, do you believe that God is at work redemptively? And when I say that, I think, unfortunately, there could be a tendency to think like, hey, yeah, we just like move right past it. 
You just tell somebody, like, God works all things together for good. You slap that, that on their situation, and they should be, like, good, good to go. And you feel like you did your part. Rather than entering into the pain, rather than responding like Jesus, who knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he weeps, like he grieves, like he full-on, like, ugly cries at the tomb of Lazarus. Like, there is this deep emotion. So we're not skirting past this. It's not to say, all right, well, What's the silver lining here, right? That there's real pain, there's real hurt that is in this room right now. And yet, God is telling us, hey, I want you to see this pattern that God is going to use the suffering and the difficulty. Now, I read Psalm 19 a little bit earlier and that there's those verses that speak about the word of God, what's referred to as special revelation. But the opening verses of Psalm 19 speak of the heavens declare your handiwork. It's like all of creation is speaking a sermon. Theologians call it general revelation. It's where people just, you know, maybe you're looking up at the, the, the sky on a clear night and you're like, wow, like there must be a God. Like who created all this? It looks like that kind of thing, right? And what's so fascinating is even if you just look at general revelation, it's helpful to pay attention sometimes to like, what are some of the stories that are told there about trials and suffering and how God is at work? And so one, you may be familiar with this. This might be something that you're, you're seeing around uh, your house in these kind of spring months, uh, right? But you may be familiar with, all right, like how do things go from like a caterpillar, all right, to a monarch butterfly? And you can see in this photo, like some of the stages there that are present. Perhaps you've even seen this in your backyard or you have a garden or you go and visit a place that, that has this. And so I don't understand all of the science. I'm not the one to really explain this. But here's the little bit that, that I do know is we think about God working redemptively. So imagine for a moment that you saw this in your, your backyard, right? You saw some caterpillars out and then, and then one day, you saw this, and there's sort of this encasing, this chrysalis, I think is maybe how you say it, or something along those lines. You can correct me later. Send me an email, all right? Um, but it begins to form around this caterpillar. And then there's this, right? I mean, crazy metamorphosis, transformation that begins to take place. And if you had this in your backyard and you were looking out, you and were watching it closely, right? You would eventually begin to see as it emerges from, it's not a cocoon, apparently, that's for moths, but as it emerges from the, this thing, right, this, like, what it's been kind of enclosed in, it is a battle. This butterfly, to get out of that, might literally kill them. It's that, it's that level of work to break free. And because you're an empathetic person, you see this happening, all right, and you're like, little buddy, I'm going to help you. And like, you run out there, and it's trying to break free, right? And if you would run out there and be like, I got you, and you start like peeling back the layers and the mess or whatever that is, right? And like, I've got you. Go be free, little butterfly. It would literally fall to the ground, and it would, it would literally end up dying. Why? Because it needed the struggle, like it actually needed it because as it's pushing forth, as it's trying to bust free, as it's trying to make this movement, like this final thing that's happening, its wings are being strengthened so that it actually can be what God created it to be. But if we rush in and try and remove some of that, it will never end up where God wants it. Now that, listen, I'll put it back up there. I mean, that, that's amazing, right? But let me tell you the most basic thing ever. That's not as amazing as you. Like, that's a butterfly. You're the image of God. 
And yet, if that is true of how God works, even just in the general creation that he's made, might it be true that God is also using the struggles in the difficulty and that he's doing this work of transformation, that the storyline of the Bible is one of entering into the pain? It's why we read throughout the, the scriptures. We have like Paul, look at how Paul describes his journey as he writes to a church in Corinth, he says, we're servants of God. We commend ourselves in every way. Here's, here's his life, right? Here's one description. There's plenty of other places he talks about all the hardship. By, by great endurance and affliction and hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. It's quite a list. And yet, a couple of verses later, here's what he says. He begins juxtaposing things. Because the storyline of the scriptures is when it looks like there's no, everything has been overcome by darkness, there's actually this light. When it looks like it's all weakness, there's actually strength. When it looks like it's nothing but death, there's actually going to be life on the other side. And so Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 8 to 10. So through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich. And then I love this line. He's just like, if I could summarize it all, he's like, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. This is in the context, remember, of trials and of difficulty and of pain and of persecution and of real loss. And Paul is like, as having nothing. So you can take all those things away. It's not to make light of it, to lose relationships, to lose financial security and stability, to lose the, these things of this world. It is hard. It is difficult. There are things to be grieved. And yet Paul says, you can take all of those things away where it appears to the world like I possess nothing. And he's like, friends, I've got something you can't touch. I possess everything because I have been possessed literally by the God of the universe who has taken me as his own and made me a son with all the rights, all the privileges, all the inheritance. I'm part of this resurrection movement. I don't have anything by the world standards and yet I've got everything and you can't touch this. That's the confidence that he has. It's why Paul Miller, I've referred to this numerous times, but I want this to be like in our culture, like in the DNA of us as a church that we would understand what he refers to as the J curve, that there is this downward descent, that there's going to be trial in your life and my life. It's not just a one-time thing. It's gonna be various J's that we live through, but there's this downward descent. There's gonna be pain and difficulty and suffering and yet it emerges into resurrection. And the power of the word, we think of Jesus, right? And it tells us in John chapter one, the word became flesh. Talk about a downward descent. The word became flesh. The God of the universe moved into the neighborhood and we have seen his glory. He says he's dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is the path of Jesus. The pattern of the word is that it brings some trials, suffering, difficulty, but God is bringing about resurrection. He's bringing about transformation. Let me read to you 
The great words as Paul writes to another church in the Macedonia area, not too far from Thessalonica, to a church that he helped start in Philippi. And he says, friends, you're to be an imitator of Jesus. So let's look to his story. He says, have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, that J curve, it is bottoming out. And that is what Jesus was willing to. He didn't hold on. He didn't grasp. He didn't claim the things that were rightfully even his. Like, I claim a lot of things that are not rightfully mine. Jesus actually is God, possesses everything, and yet he emptied himself and he willingly went. So that what? So that one day people would know him. So one day there'd be more people that could live this out, that could find life. This is why it continues. It says, therefore, in verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word became flesh so that one day you and I with our words might be able to praise God, be caught up in this resurrection story and say, you are exalted. You are the King of kings. You are Lord of lords. And I find my life in you. I have righteousness because it's been given to me. You've given me your righteousness. Friends, that's the story that you're invited into. And so to close with this, if there's this pattern, friends, there's also related to it, a participation in the word. What does it look like for you and I to be people that are experiencing the transformation of God and then to participate? And so I'll put two words before you I'd like you to to think through, right? This idea of evaluation and reverberation, or this idea of, or you could say to evaluate and reverberate. And the first is this in regards to evaluation. When you get an opportunity, not just here on Sunday, though it includes this and our week starts with this and everything flows out of this. So we'll start certainly by talking. It's not less than this. Think about this. Are you evaluating, as we think about evaluation, are you evaluating the sermon or are you evaluating self? Now, listen, it doesn't mean the sermon should never be evaluated or that, that listen, I'm open to critique. I'm not, that's not really what I'm talking about. But sometimes there can be this tendency, even in things that, that we're sharing with one another, that we get excited about. It could be something that's proclaimed here. It could be a podcast that you listen to, right? And we're the kind of people like, oh, you got to listen to this. Or like, oh my goodness, this sermon, like they just killed it. Or they nailed it. You know, they like knocked it out of the park, that sort of thing. And like, well, I think we're somewhat missing the point. It would actually be far healthier if you walked out today, right? And we're like, man, I knocked it out of the park as a listener, I absolutely killed it as an obedient listener to the word of God. Like less focus on just taking in the information and more are you opening yourself up to actually receiving from God his word, not from men, not my takes or opinions, but like the word of God and allowing it to be that mirror where you're like, oh, yes, I see clearly again my need. I see the ways this week I believed and heard and listened to and embraced all the other narratives. I need to be reminded of what is true and good and beautiful in this world. I need to be reminded of Jesus. So how are you evaluating it? Is it just like, well, this sermon did this or that? Like, sure, you can t- have those conversations, but how are you doing as the listener? How am I, and listen, that's for me as well, right? How am I hearing this? But then also, 
this invitation to reverberation. How are we taking what we are hearing and allowing it to echo the word to go forth in our lives? Jonathan Lehman in his book, Reverberation, says it this way. The problem is that God's word is not always massaged through the life of the congregation like yeast through dough. People show up on a Sunday for the sermon and often do little more. The ministry of the word stops at noon. The ministry of the word indeed begins in the pulpit, but then it must continue through the life of the church. And hear this, as members echo God's word back and forth to one another, the word reverberates as in an echo chamber. In a real echo chamber, sound reverberates off the walls. And in the church, it's the hearts of people that both absorb and project the sounds of his effectual word. May we be a people that reverberate the word of God. I need you to echo back to me the word. I need to be reminded of what is true. You need the church to echo back to you the word of God. We need one another. And this starts on a Sunday morning, but it flows out from here. And it looks like program things like groups and studies. Yes and amen to all of that. And it also just looks like a gospel fluency that's beginning to emerge where you're having conversations with people and you are helping to echo back to them what is true. Because we all have like this gospel amnesia. We forget, and I need to be reminded. Like if I get worked up in a sermon, it's not because like, you really need to hear this. It's because I really need to hear this, and I can't get it through my thick skull half the time. I need to be reminded of what God is doing, how he's at work through his son. So let's be people of reverberation. Let me, let me pray for us as we get ready to continue in our service. I encourage you to take some time to Ask the Spirit to lead you in repentance, to remember the good news of the gospel. We get to rejoice together. But let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus, we thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you drank the cup of the Father's wrath all the way to the bottom. Thank you that you are the Word made flesh. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask right now that you would be doing the work in your kindness to, to lead us to repentance. Would you shine the spotlight on Jesus right now to remind us afresh of who he is and our need? And I thank you that we get to rejoice together. We get to rejoice in this communion meal. We get to rejoice through singing songs, through prayer. We get to rejoice by seeing people in the baptismal waters today, God. What a gift that is. So thank you for how you're at work. God, I ask that you would continue to work, that you continue to build your church, that you would build us into a, reverb, a community that reverberates the gospel back and forth to one another and to our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members. God, wherever you've placed us, and would you do it for your glory and our joy, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, I want